The following sermon is from Evangel Temple Youth Ministries. For more information about how you can get involved, please visit etchurch.org forward slash youth. So, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Sam. Hi, Sam. Hi, Sam. I don't say that. Um, so... I've been here for a while now, and I've gotten the pleasure to be able to get to know a lot of you guys. Uh, And so I guess it's probably a little bit strange whenever you see identities revealed, living out your identity as you grow to understand Christ. And, you know, I imagine that that's a little bit weird whenever you're, you know, hearing somebody up here uh, talk about who it is that you are exactly. So bear with me. I hope I'm able to, you know, I don't know, maybe teach you something new. I think that's what I'm supposed to do. That's That's what I'm supposed to do, at least. So I want to go ahead and start by diving into the scripture that we have tonight. As Pastor Isaac said earlier, we're going to be diving into Mark chapter 2. So for those of you that have your Bibles with you or you have your phones on you that have the Bible app, I would invite you to go in and get there. And uh, I want to take a look at where we are in Mark first. So uh, let's go in and set the scene. Before this chapter, um, of course, we uh, last week, Pastor Isaac talked about if Jesus is big, then we are small through the introduction that Mark has there. And so later on in the chapter, it talks um, a lot about a leper who was healed and that uh, Jesus told him, don't tell anybody. He tells everybody and people get, some people get mad at him. But the point is like, you know, it makes it difficult for Jesus to be able to preach and teach in that area now. So uh, now We are at the beginning of chapter 2, and it says, I'm going to be reading from the ESV. And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. Sorry, I just realized that. Oh, yeah, you got it. Awesome. Uh, And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there, questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic? Your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. So let's go ahead and kind of like contextualize what's going on here. I think that whenever... uh, Whenever we kind of approach these kind of scriptures, we're able to see a lot of the surface details. We're able to kind of almost storyboard it in our minds. So let's say that this is the start, and we're going to be going all the way to the end over here. So at the start, we see Jesus is at his home in Capernaum. And based on the chapter before, we see that he's getting swarmed in there. Like people are just kind of coming in, like, you know, they're not putting coasters underneath their drinks. It's just pure mayhem, right? So, you know, I know my my parents would be very upset. So... People aren't using coasters. It's getting pretty rowdy, and it just keeps on getting rowdier and rowdier and rowdier and rowdier until uh, 
there's this paralytic that knows that he needs to be able to see Jesus. And we see it constantly, like, you know, people are like, I need to see this guy. Kind of like how my sisters in high school thought that they needed Taylor Swift tickets. They ended up getting them. So they need to see Jesus, and he needs to be healed. And so they're like, front door ain't going to work. Window ain't going to work. What are we going to do? We're going to go to the roof. Now, let me go on and tell you guys how roofs worked in case you didn't really understand. So typically, they don't have doors. If you want to take a look up here, if you see the easiest way to be able to get in through the roof, then you're probably lying. So let me go in and explain to you what a roof was like to them in that time. It was usually uh, layers of different fabrics and muds that were able to withstand different weather elements. So these people went up there, and they're like, there's not a door up here. What are we going to do? We're going to make a door. So okay. they go to the roof, and they make a door in the bottom of, I guess it's the bottom of the roof, the top of the, the ceiling. Anyway, so they are digging through there, digging through there, digging through there, and then they lower him in on a bed. Okay? So they're lowering him in on the bed, and then that's when he gets to Jesus. So now we've kind of like set the scene of everything. And I want to think that whenever we approach these kind of scriptures where Jesus or anybody really addresses any kind of questions or doubts like the scribes seem to have later on, that we need to kind of understand what this argumentation looks like and why it is that he's going about things in this certain order. And specifically relating to the story, we see a large, almost inferred or automatic claim that's made by Jesus here. And the claim is simple. Jesus is trying to tell them that everybody in that room that he doesn't just have power over people's bodies, he has power over our souls as well. So why does he go about this in this order? And I know I keep on asking that. I promise I'm going to answer these questions. But we see in other scriptures where Jesus says in Matthew 10, 28, do not fear those who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both the body and the soul in hell. And when we're talking about a series describing the identity of Christ and being able to understand that in contrast to our own identities. You know, we could talk all day just about what Christ can do. Like, you know, I could talk about hypotheticals about how he can take Mount A and he can throw it into space as if it was a rocket ship. I could talk about how he can do the most amazing things, physical, spiritual, mental, whatever it is, but I don't think that it's all that important to the identity of Christ until we're able to learn how he uses these things. Take, for example, this idea that I have this key card, right? I have this key card, just imagine. So I have this key card in my hand, and this key card is able to get me through any door in the entire world. You're not going to really, you may be able to infer that I have some kind of power or that some people trust me or that somebody gave me this key. You're able to infer these kind of things, but it's not until you see how I start to use this key card and what doors I'm deciding to get in that you understand what kind of person I really am. So let's take a look at just why and how Jesus uses his power here. And even in that situation, something has been done. I've taken this story that you were able to read at a moment's glance, and I'm trying to be able to explain to you the way that I want you to be able to look at it. And I think that Jesus does that a lot here. Uh, <coughs> because... You know, you could try to, like, imagine, like, you know, what you're seeing whenever you see, like, the roof torn apart and a man is being lowered in. And you may have, like, your own thoughts about what's going on, but it's not until Jesus kind of takes charge of the situation that you're able to understand really what's going on. 
And so when Jesus is talking about uh, to the scribes that you may understand that I have authority, I'm going to do this as well, it brings me to my main idea. And it's simply, how can we say that Jesus questions our intentions for our own sake? How can we say that Jesus questions our intentions for our own sake? Now, before we continue, I want to clarify something, and it's because Mark, of course, is not writing to a youth group in Springfield, Missouri in 2019. He's writing to the people in the first century, and he wrote out of Rome, and so it's a very different culture. Uh, and so I want to clarify something that I'm not trying to explain the difference between uh, the whole uh, your sins are forgiven versus the whole uh, rise, take up your bed, and walk out of here. Because back then, in John chapter 9, and it seems to kind of clear this point almost to a T, it talks of Jesus and his disciples walking past a blind man, and the question comes up of, did this man sin or did his father sin? Because in that culture, there was this kind of idea that either you sinned or somebody else sinned to be able to give you whatever kind of physical abnormalities or sicknesses or whatever it was, it was somebody's fault that it happened. And Jesus kind of clears up, and I don't know if many of you know the story, where he essentially says, it's that you may know that the Son of Man has power to be able to heal, to be able to further glorify God in that situation. And so kind of view that in parallel with this. So for some to be able to praise God whenever he goes to this paralytic man and is told your sins are forgiven, it's not going to be all that weird in this context. So, uh, two things. I have two big points. And it's built off of the two things that Jesus says to this paralytic man. It's built off of your sins are forgiven, rise, take up your bed and go home. And it brings me to my first point. It's simply, Jesus doesn't try to meet our needs as we see them. Jesus doesn't try to meet our needs as we see them. So Jesus clearly saw a need. I'm going to go in and spell it out for you. He sees a man who's lowered onto a bed from a torn open roof, and he's incapable of moving. He's incapable of getting anywhere on his own to such a degree that he can't even crawl through a group of people to be able to get to Jesus. He has to get lowered in from a ceiling to be able to do it. And you could try to argue that, like, you know, Jesus was eventually trying to be able to get to this point of being able to heal him. But that wasn't the primary need in this story. It wasn't the primary need at all. Just as when Jesus heals the blind man in the story in John chapter 9, or when Jesus does most of his miracles, it's not for usually the purpose of just healing that person. There's usually a lot more that's going on in that situation. But here's another thing. The request to be healed from being paralyzed for Jesus, it was a safe request. Now, what do I mean by that? I mean that if he had gone in there and Jesus was able to heal him completely, even the scribes who were criticizing him and calling him a liar and a blasphemer, which is just like liar but like religious and like super worse. But these people that were trying to criticize Jesus so heavily, probably would have left on his side if it was just, wow, this good teacher works miracles. But instead, he had a different intention. He had a different idea than 
you know, maybe even his friends that brought him. And a lot of tonight that I want you guys to be able to know, even just like under the surface of the message, is that typically there's a lot more of like a fierce love that you're able to see with Christ in these situations that isn't immediately obvious. And I think that stopping there with Jesus is one thing that gets in the way of our admitting that he is the Lord over what we should want. He is the absolute Lord of everything and understanding that he is not concerned with our little things as much as he is with loving us and making sure that we're saved and fiercely and wanting what's best for us to know that he will always know better. I want to add a point of clarification here. I'm not trying to say that the little things don't necessarily matter to God. I'm not trying to say that at all. I'm what I am saying is that if you find yourself in a situation with having a bad day, if you find yourself in a situation of feeling alone, feeling depressed, feeling anxious, you have to understand that your salvation and your own relationship with God is something that God wants you to be able to prioritize even over those. So it doesn't mean that God doesn't necessarily care. It's kind of like in a situation where, you know, Obviously, like, you know, parents would care about their child's happiness, but more than anything, they're going to care about making sure that they have a shelter, that they have food, that they have clothing. It's that kind of relationship between those two things. And with that, I want to be able to bring you to the second and, I guess, point that kind of comes next is Jesus meets our needs as, sorry, Jesus doesn't, sorry, Jesus primarily meets our needs as he sees them. Sorry, there's a bit of a typo there. And again, I think the best way to be able to characterize this is with the parent and child relationship. For example, if, if a child has a need for happiness, and as part of that they want to say, Mom, Dad, I want to be able to go to a movie, and I want to be able to go to dinner with my friends this upcoming weekend, and the parent just says no. There's obviously got to be something that the child doesn't know about. Perhaps the budget is tight this month, or... Um, that's the difference between being able to decide if they're going to be able to get the groceries for the rest of the week is movie and dinner for one can just be kind of expensive and going out and everything. The point is there's often something that they aren't quite aware of or they're not quite in knowing of the full intention of the parent at that time. And Jesus consistently throughout the Gospels is this person that, you know, always does know best in every single situation, no matter what. Christ is always the one in every situation who does know best. But that's, there's more to it than that, though. We have Jesus with this great amount of power who does know best. But we're able to see how he's able to use it as well. It says that he saw the faith of his friends, and he says, your sins are forgiven. And I can guarantee you that when everybody walked in that room, they understand that this man was a good teacher and perhaps that he was able to work miracles because they were flooding him. They were flooding his house. They weren't using coasters. And they completely and utterly knew that he was able to work miracles, but they didn't know that he was able to forgive sins. But I think that it's important to understand the why of this decision. I've been alluding to it a lot. And I'm not going to be the person to be able to tell you the exact mind of God. But I am going to tell you that Jesus is in perfect community and perfect unity with God the Father 
And we're able to see it a lot even in the Old Testament, where the God of the universe perhaps even saw this man laying there as a paralytic man. An Israelite, part of God's promise. And instead of the seeing the paralytic man that everyone else is seeing, we know that God never changes. And so perhaps, just maybe, he saw and thought back to the Garden of Eden. He saw Adam and Eve And he saw the serpent, and he saw that he was promising that one day, one day, somebody wasn't going to stand aside anymore, that he himself was going to come back and be able to crush this sin that was present in people's lives. And here he's doing that. He's telling them that his sins are forgiven. He saw so much more so much more in that man that was just laying there on the bed than just somebody who needed to be able to get up and walk. He saw somebody who needed to still be forgiven. And I want to be able to speak to you guys tonight personally as far as with your own moments of expectation and disappointment. And it's perhaps even disappointment for those moments that you feel like you've done what you needed to, and yet it still seems like it's not working. It's those moments like perhaps in school where you felt like you've done everything that you could to be able to ace the test and it just didn't happen. Those moments where you felt like you handled everything with your friends, with your friends perfectly and things just don't go the way that you intend for them to. but I want to remind you of something. We're not called to understand everything like Jesus understood it. This idea of the identity of Christ, and I'm going to go back all the way to the, to the title card here, Identities Revealed, living out your identity as you grow to understand Christ. It doesn't mean that we're going to be identical, identical to Christ in everything. It doesn't. In fact, even in the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve decided that they wanted to be like God, they listened to the serpent when the serpent said, take and eat of this fruit, and you can be like God, knowing good and evil. You can be your own judge. You can decide for yourself. And so in today's culture, we talk about this idea of you hear it on the news and you hear it on, you know, different television stations, or you hear it in different Netflix series, that people are discovering their own identities. They're speaking their own truth. And they're deciding for themselves who they want to be as their own person. And I don't think that some of the sentiment behind that lines up necessarily with Scripture. I'm not going to tell you everything that you have to do, the job that you're going to have the person you're going to marry, the way you raise your children, or the way that you have to talk. But what I can tell you is that God indeed does know better. And so if you feel or know that he is telling you to stop or start something, please know that it's not to make God feel better, it's that you may be better. So I want to get to my conclusion in a simple way 
Because we can now say how Jesus is somebody who understands everything vastly, vastly, vastly better than us. No philosopher will ever understand thinking better or no lawyer is ever going to understand justice better and no scientist is going to be able to understand the natural world better. No cook is going to be able to understand cooking better. In a thousand lifetimes, then God already knows now. So my conclusion for you is not necessarily a takeaway action as much as it is a takeaway thought. And it's, we can't say we've been abandoned when things don't go as expected. And this doesn't mean that if you feel abandoned in any moment that you pretend like you're not feeling that way. I'm not trying to say that at all. And please don't believe that any such lie is true. We see it many times in the Psalms that David is trying to express his disappointment and his anger that he has toward God. But I think it's important that you understand that those are still lies. I think that uh, many times, and we actually talked about it a lot during a season, not a season, a series that we had last semester about pain and dealing with mourning and understanding why evil does happen. And for those of you who were in some of my small groups, you heard me tell this story about a man who was a profound atheist, a profound atheist in Europe during the time of World War II and the Holocaust. And he would talk about how he didn't really understand religion. He didn't understand the idea about how God could be a good God. And so he would ask himself this question over and over again until one day he felt like he had an answer. The question was, how on earth can I take a look at these people, you know, Jews, gypsies, homosexuals, people that were just brought into a town square and hanged in front of everybody just for their heritage, just for their decisions. How can I consider a good God is there? Where is God in that situation? And he said that one day he heard a whisper almost as if it was right over his shoulder and it said, I'm right there with them as they hang. Where else would I be? And I can tell you that the paralytic man could have been unable to move for the rest of his life. Yet still with his sins being forgiven, he could have entered into paradise. He could have entered heaven still. And this sentiment is also reflected in Matthew 18.8, which says, and if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. I want to go ahead and go into a time of reflection tonight on this passage and this basic understanding that Jesus is this person who understands more than we ever will. He can always see every aspect of the situation more than we ever will. And as a little aside for this idea of identity and who we want to grow to be in Christ, I don't know if many of you know this, but in Psalms it says that before I was formed in the womb, you knew me. 
And so tonight, I want you guys to go into a time of reflection and asking yourselves, who is it that God knew in that womb? What aspects of me did he know in that womb? And how can I grow in Christ in any situation just with the basic understanding that I'm never abandoned and he is always with me. We hope you enjoyed the sermon. If you're not already a part of the ET family, we invite you to join us on Wednesday nights. For more information, visit etchurch.org. Thanks for listening and we hope to see you soon.